Good evening and welcome to this Arena, or, arena RTE Short Story Special live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera. <laughs> now, back in the springtime, we asked all of you potential or indeed experienced writers to get cracking on a short story for the RTE annual competition in honour of Francis McManus. Well, you did what we asked. 1,700 entries later, and a lot of intense reading from our judges, we have a shortlist of 10 finalists. I'm delighted to say all 10 shortlisted writers are here with us in the Pavilion Theatre this evening. The stories have now been broadcast on RTE Radio 1 and published on rte.ie forward slash culture, and you will have heard some of the shortlisted writers speaking with me on Arena during the past few weeks. Tonight we will find out who's walking away with the top prizes, starting with the first prize of €5,000. And the judges this year are novelist and filmmaker Ferdia McConnor, novelist and short story writer Kathleen McMahon, whose most recent book is The Home Scar, and Claire Kilroy, whose novel Soldier Sailor has just been nominated Novel of the Year in the Irish Book Awards. Unfortunately, Claire can't be with us here tonight in the pavilion, but Ferdia and Kathleen are going to take me on on a whistle-stop tour through all ten short stories. So it'll be short whistle-stops tour, a very quick one indeed. Let us name all ten people, because they deserve that at the very least. In, our, in alphabetical order of title, this is, these are the ten shortlisted stories and writers. Artificial Intelligence for Psychotherapists by Alona Adams. Breathe by Robin Livingstone. It All Began with the Turlock by Kevin Gaffney. Mr Who by John O'Donnell. Off Season by Jamie Sampson. On Creekhaven Bridge by Peter McCauley. Tessa and Viviane by Judy Cruikshank. The Turkish Rug by Natalie Ryan. The Warbler by Katrina McArdle. And You by Nadine O'Regan. Applause for all of them. So sure is a whistle-stop tour that we're going on, Ferdia. I mean, it, there are so many themes that I, I got across these stories. I mean, artificial intelligence is in there. It's even the title of one of the stories. Social media is there in the story You. Conflict is there in the story Breathe. Climate change is there. And it all began with the Turk. Lots of other themes there, too. Was there one that jumped out at you? I think the writers took a risk. And I, took the, I think they took a risk on uh, v uh, varieties of mad love. They just took love and twisted it and distorted it. You got motherly love, you got sibling love, you got robot love. You got all sorts of uh, variations on that. And that's where I think the prism was, if there was anything. Mm. But they were very distinct and very different voices and they were, the standard was really high. Yeah, and, and love really is an important theme, Kathleen. In fact, the human condition, and love is very much, we would hope, part of that. All kinds of love, mother-daughter in Tessa and Vivienne, father-son in On Creek Avon Bridge, father-daughter in The Warbler. Wonderful relationships explored here, including interfamilial relationships, friends, and friendship among, or love among friends, and even love for a little bird. It's the subject, human relationships, how character interacts with that, how it causes us to behave around each other, the connections, the disconnections, the dissonance, love and the lack of love. Yeah. And those are the things that motor all of these stories, pretty much. And it is extraordinary that all 10 stories are so different. Um, they may treat as similar themes, but they're all very much of themselves. Totally, but I think they each show that the way we try to understand who we are and who, the mystery of who each other are, mm. the mystery of another person's life, is through telling stories. And each of these does that so beautifully. And, you know, Claire Keegan, Sarah Gilmartin, Angela Flannery, Colin Walsh, just some of the published authors that have been on the RTE short story uh, list in, in the years gone by, 
it's obviously a bit of a signifier for publishers out there, fair to you. It is. It, it's fantastic. And one of the great things about it is it, it gives a voice to new talent, but also it gives a proper radio voice to the stories, mm. which is the, that was the big learning curve for me for the last couple of years, to actually hear the stories brought to vivid, incandescent, technicolor life by, by brilliant readings by professional actors. That's one of the, the joys of it. Yeah, because it it's a two-part write in some ways, because it's for radio and it's for the page as well, which is quite a task to pull off, Kathleen. It reveals so much, and the judging reveals a lot, you know? I mean, I think Claire made this point, that quality will out, and we each had our, you know, our pets and our favourites, but mm. once we really sat down to scrutinise them, you know, under the lights, the best stories surface to the top. It's very interesting. And I promise I won't tell anybody fairly, were there big fights? Big fight. Oh, fierce deliberations, yeah. Uh, over Jammy Dodgers and coffee. Yeah, I believe Jammy Dodgers were one of the major um, kind of very, writers to be a very, judge for this Very underrated literary uh, influence. <laughs> okay, well, I must start eating more of them and see how, it, see how it helps me along. Now, we're going to dive into each one of the stories separately, but before we do that, we have some music here this evening as well. A couple of numbers for you. And let's start with the first offering this evening from Susanna Derrickson and who's going to do the singing and Conor Lenehan on piano. I've played the same record again and again Hoping you'll walk into the song with the violins I trust you've memorized your script I've got my part down perfectly The song with the violins, sung there by Susanna Derrickson and Conor Linehan, accompanying on piano, and we'll have more from Susanna and Conor a little bit later in the programme. All right, let us get stuck into the stories. The order in which we speak now is of no relevance. The fact that some people are speaking here and that others spoke on radio is of no relevance. That had nothing got to do with who is in third position, who is in second, and who is in first. It was just logistics and um, the kind of shape of the evening we wanted. So read nothing into anything. Him for the next while. Um, let's start with the uh, first story that we're going to talk about, which is You by Nadine O'Regan. Um, if, known to arena audiences, of course, regularly on, on a Friday night, often reviewing albums at this particular point in time or a little bit later on. But Ferdy, this really, this is one of those stories that gets into personal relationships and social media, the morass, the it, mess that can be social media. It does, and, and, it's, and it does so in a gloriously twisted way. There's nothing as delightful as reading a gloriously twisted love story that makes you feel that the narrator is normal. Um, and, and this is a gorgeous piece of work. I, I love the voice of the narrator. I love the, the, the setup. I love the fact that she that she, uh, she's not that mad on the guy in the beginning. It's only when he dumps her and goes off with someone else that she sets in motion the, uh, the Revenger strategy to get him back. And it also has the, uh, a very deceptive but fabulous upbeat, weird ending. <laughs> it's a terrific, terrific piece of work. Uh, of course, in any walk of life, be careful about looking in somebody's diary. Be careful about opening up somebody's phone. Be careful about looking at the direct messages on their Twitter feed. There are some lessons in here as well, Kathleen. Oh, yes, they? indeed. And, you know, this story rings so true. He's such a brilliant villain, the love interest in this. And, <laughs> you know, I think the mark of the story is I know that guy. I mean, he's so familiar. You know, the faux feminism, the disarming confessions about his depression, so he's vulnerable. And it's like the tension as she falls for him 
is just unbearable as the story progresses because he's a lowlife. And, you know, that is such a wonderful flip in in such Mm. a short story to turn that on its head. It's brilliant. Yeah, and of course, when your friends tell you that you shouldn't be going out with that person, you should possibly listen to them. Okay, we also, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the programme, have two actors with us this evening, Rory Nolan and Katrina Nwaraku, who are going to read some extracts for us. I'm going to start with an extract from Nadine O'Regan's You. Uh, Katrina Niwaraku will read for us now. Twitter was how you knew in the end. You didn't get access to his phone. He guarded it too closely for that. But one night he left his Twitter on his laptop open. You opened up his DMs. Your heart was pounding so hard you felt it could be heard in the room with you. At the same time, you felt despair. You didn't want what you had guessed to be confirmed. But there it was, DM after DM, to four different women, at least two of whom he appeared to have slept with while you were a couple. You sat with the knowledge for weeks, felt paralysed, said nothing, told no one, told yourself you were deciding what to do. Then, the indignity of it. At Christmas, he broke up with you. Explain that it wasn't working anymore. I know about the other women. You told him, crying. He denied everything, said it was casual flirting on social media, fantasising at the most. No big deal. Afterwards, he began a public relationship with one of the four girls he'd been cheating on you with. She was beautiful. Much, much hotter than you. They went to a friend's wedding and posted pictures. The Instagram images of them on the dance floor, surrounded by people you'd spent so much time with, rent your heart. On International Women's Day, he posted indignantly about the shoddy way women are treated in the world. It got 16 likes and three retweets. There we go. Katrina Niwaraku reading from uh, You by Nadine O'Regan. And I'll ask Nadine to come up and have a chat with us on stage uh, about that particular, what was it? Uh, Verdi kept talking or saying they're gloriously twisted. (laughs) But he did say, with a normal person, you uh, really picked up on an old tradition here of one of the great short story writers, Maeve Binchy eavesdropping, I believe, was the start of all of this, Nadine. Yeah, I was doing a writing workshop with David Nichols, the author of One Day, and he'd given us a writing exercise of one person overhearing two other people. And at the time, I was on maternity leave, and I was walking my baby son around the park a lot, and I spotted a couple arguing one day on a bench, and I had this deadline for this workshop. So I was like, okay, okay, cool. So I kind of went with that, and... Um, yeah, it was, it was kind of amazing to have that scenario presented to me because I think often with short stories, 
you, you're looking at the empty page and you're kind of wondering where to begin and how to find the tone and how to find the voice. And in a way, just that short scenario and then the endless pounding of the pavements that I was doing on mat leave when you're kind of isolated in a way, you're just walking with the buggy and everyone else's lives become very interesting to you. It provided the jumping off point. So I'm, I'm not shy about saying that a lot of this was written on my iPhone. So I had the buggy, <laughs> the iPhone and, uh, and my ears. There yeah. you go. Well, your ears, your iPhone, and the buggy all did great work. Congratulations, Nadine. <laughs> so there we go, Nadine O'Regan and the story you. Let us move on then to the second of our stories this evening. Uh, and in this case, we're speaking about it all began with the Turlock. I spoke with Kevin Gaffney on the programme during the week. Kathleen, um, this is a wonderful story where the landscape takes over. And near time that nature did something like that, isn't it? very unusual story. I think Cuevin has described it as a revenge of nature story. And yeah, the, 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 this small lake in Cavan starts growing and uh, coming to seep into the graveyard. So it is a horror story, but it's lightened by humour. And this is such an incredible feat of imagination. You know, that nature, which we think of as passive and that we're in charge, that it's alive and it's coming to get us. It certainly is in Cuevin's story. So let us have Rory Nolan to the microphone then to read some of It All Began With The Turlock by Cuevin Gaffney. One morning, an old man emerged from the house beside the Turlock. <clears throat> well, now on the Turlock, and pushed an empty turtle-shaped sand piss from his front door. Climbing in with his fishing rod, he began to row with a frying pan, ignoring the upwind calls for his attention from the people gathered at the church. The church had never been so busy, except during the funeral of a local landlord when people arrived in the hope that the inheriting family would not evict them. The priest's campaign for stopping the right-of-way across the parish fields had been belatedly successful, in a sort of way, as people now rode to the church across drowned fields. The cause for this sudden religious zealousness was that last night, Loch Canal, known for its dangerous marshy reed beds, had slid across several hectares of fields to meet the turlock and the bog. They bumped against each other slowly, making a sound that was somehow dirty. Emboldened, the small lakes of Loch Derrick and Bracklock both moved to join them, their sharp, cold water licking the soft, muddy flesh of the wetland. With the locks now connected with the farthest edge of the bog, they would all rejoin their ancient mother, Loch Sheelan, after more than 250 million years apart. Rory Nolan there, reading from It All Began with the Turlock by Kevin Gaffney. And I remember last Friday when I was speaking with Kevin, it was lashing rain in Dublin, and it was lashing rain in Cavan where Kevin was. Thankfully, it's slightly different tonight. Breathe by Robin Livingstone is the third story that we're going to go to. It, it's called Breathe. It actually could be called Breathless in some ways, this particular story. The pacing and the kind of the trajectory of the story is extraordinary, Ferdy. It's, it's like being immersed in the story. It's, it's, it's like a thriller. It's a thriller about a young fella caught up in a riot or being chosen to be in the riot mm. and what happens to them and the, the great 
amongst the great achievements of the story is that you're absolutely there every second with him. You feel what he feels, you see what he sees, and by the time he gets to the hospital at the end, you're totally rooting for him, hoping he can uh, come out of this. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. It's, it's a great feat of intelligence and imagination and skill and talent. We often talk about the, uh, the arc of a short story, Kathleen. In this case, we have literally the firing of a bullet to the very last word. It's a perfect arc in some ways. It's such a perfect story, the storytelling, just the, 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 the tension in it when you realise that he's been shot, when he realises he's mm. been shot. The language in this story is absolutely magnificent. And I think while it's about Belfast during the Troubles, it could be anywhere, any mm. city, any riot, any young man facing a soldier. And that's the amazing thing about it. Yeah, this story. it is an extraordinary story for the evening. Robin Livingstone is with us. I'll invite you up to the stage, Robin. Um, and, and as both Ferdia and Kathleen have suggested or have told us there, this is a story with a Belfast setting. It comes from your time working as a journalist uh, during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. It certainly does, yeah. Um, the uh, uh, plastic bullets and er earlier rubber bullets were something that we covered a lot, obviously, with the, the deaths and the injuries. Um, and it's something that, that stayed with me, just the, the human stories of it. And we all know about the, the, the huge number of deaths, especially among young people. And But what we possibly no less about the number of lives that have been shattered, people that have been maimed, families that were ripped apart by it, and the human stories of those people which mm. haven't been told and aren't told um, and who are still having to go on with their lives. Not worse, the, the guy in my story isn't as badly hurt, although he suffers very serious injuries, but these people who've been hit in the head or or suffered major um, uh, uh, trauma to the brain or whatever they're living their lives that way. And that's something that, 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 that stuck with me. The other thing, which is really interesting, which I want to mention now, is that we saw during the, um, the uh, Notting Hill Carnival that plastic bullets are only used in the north of Ireland, that they gave, um, the London government gave permission for them to be used at the Notting Hill Carnival, if needed they weren't but that's okay so you've got the the historical thing of the the blacks and the irish and i don't know when they're going to start turning them on dogs but maybe there's a story in that in the future you know well congratulations on the shortlisting uh, robin that's robin livingstone and robin's story is called breathe and let's have a let's have a, a short reading from breathe with uh, rory nolan once again here round the corner and he's walking now the crowd is regrouped launching stones and bottles at the line of soldiers from cover. He's trying to find something to throw and at the same time hoping to spot his separated friends. He coughs without opening his mouth and he feels it's productive, like he's caught a bit of unexpected phlegm. He spits it out and the gob flashes bright red in the sunshine. He feels an electric jab of concern lance from his brain down through the back of his face and into his chest. That was a fucking live round, wasn't it? Straight through the heart. He looks up and the Divis Tower and the Belfast Hills are lurching as if he's seen them through a portal in a storm. He drops to one knee. Somebody has shouted that the wee lads shot and they're around him now and he's on his side, the blood leaking from the side of his mouth onto the road's white centre line. They're shouting sounds to him like shouting he hears at the swimmers. Detached, comforting, echoing, alienating. 
It occurs to him to put his hand to his heart and sighed, and there's no hole in his chest where a live round would have come out. He's encouraged both by his presence of mind and the absence of an exit hole, and he holds on to the hope he's just given himself. If a live one went through your heart, you'd have been dead before you took another step, he's thinking, as they lift him by arms and feet and put him in the back of a black taxi. An extract there from Breathe by Robin Livingston. Let's move on to the fourth of our stories, fourth of our ten shortlisted stories then in this evening's competition, Artificial Intelligence for Psychotherapists. This is by Ilona Adams. Uh, You might go for help when you're feeling down to several different areas, psychotherapist, you might go to family, friend, whatever. Who does the, where, does the, where does the protagonist go in this particular case? Well, the only very obvious good. option, a chatbot, you know, um, <laughs> goes, and it's a really funny, delightful, satirical send-up of dating apps, dating apps, relationship, love, and it's very, very funny. It's, uh, it, it's, it's beautifully read, beautifully written, and uh, it's... It leaves you with this lovely upbeat feeling at the end. It, it has a kind of a quirky, happy ending. It kind of the, the the narrator, the voice is beautifully realised throughout. Comes through this and finds yeah. something. Comes to comes to almost like a, an acceptance of something at the end. Did you like the chatbot at the end? Uh, briefly, Kathleen. It's so funny, and I just thought it's so touching. This writer manages in creating a story that's about a chatbot and it's told in dot dot dots and typing to find this lovely humanity. In, in the box. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear Katrina in the Warwick reading a section from Artificial Intelligence for Psychotherapists. I'm Irish. I know you're from South Dublin. Oh, Jesus, how did you know that? That's so stressful. Uh, can you hear my cringe accent through my typing or something? I can see your IP address. Oh, <laughs> Is it embarrassing to be from South Dublin? (laughs) Just a bit. A step above being English, though. (laughs) That was a joke. I am programmed not to discriminate or agree with discriminatory comments based on race. (laughs) With no exception for colonial powers. (laughs) You were programmed by someone nicer than me, I think. I think you're nice. <laughs> so that's, uh, Artificial Intelligence for Psychotherapists by Ilona Adams. Uh, halfway through now, Ferdy, uh, uh, or Kathy, I'll go to you on this one, Kathy, and actually first. A story about grief, The Warbler by Katrina McCarroll. And one of the a few, the few stories here that are about a, a parent-child kind of relationship, in this case, it's, it's a father-daughter. Lovely, lovely story that kind of starts very gently and brings you into one day the teenage daughter and father are going to cut bog, cut turf on the bog, start the summer holidays. And as I say, it's a very gentle start, but the truth in the relationship that comes out in this story, that the mother is dead, and they start this tussle over the mother's memory, which is so interesting. Mm. The daughter, the father says she likes loose dry flowers, and the daughter remembers it differently and 
it just captures so beautifully the observations in this story. I love the father eating his sandwiches and staring into the distance as he ate. Sometimes just yeah. a perfect description like that is enough to elevate a story. And it is, it touches what Catherine's touching on there, Ferdy, the idea of the father-daughter where sometimes there aren't words to actually communicate the, the feelings and the thoughts. And he's so well-meaning and irritating <laughs> in his well-meaningness that she, yeah. she's almost driven mad by him. But the last line is beautiful. The last couple of lines just sum it up so... And yeah. It is a lovely, uh, it's almost like a reconciliation in some respects. Yeah, very touching indeed. Let's have, let's have a listen to a section from The Warbler by Katrina McCarlin. Once again, it's Katrina Iwaraku reading here. I trudged across the dry bog land until it gave way to muck and rushes, bog cotton barely moving in the mugginess. Bird song got louder as I moved toward the bushes. My ponytail was warm and heavy on my neck. The pool was shallow and alive with flies and water fleas. I knew the names of most things there, the legacy of nature walks with my old country school. It seemed so much longer than a year since I'd left it. I turned back toward my dad. He was bent at the hip, both arms moving together, building the stacks two by two, robotic almost. Then a sound, like someone mowing grass in the distance, a mechanical hum through the gorse, a warbler. I'd heard one before, but never seen it. A small, secretive bird, a summer visitor who spends his winters in the warm climes of tropical West Africa. Dad had his shirt off now, the sweat on his back glimmering in the heat. I stood dead still, watching for the warbler, camouflage somewhere in this jumble of growth. It was a long way to come every year from Africa to breed and raise his young. The drudgery of that journey back, just to keep them warm in winter. I looked back again toward my dad. I could see him in the distance, standing straight now. He pulled an elbow back behind his head, then the other. He swung his head slowly around in a circle, stretching his neck, opening his eyes to the sky for a second before bending down again. The warbler went silent. Carl and uh, I'll ask Katrina to come up to, to the stage uh, to speak to me about that. And Katrina, you've said that this is semi-autobiographical. Just explain that to us, if you would. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I guess, I, um, yeah, I don't know, sorry. Um, I, I remember days on, on the bog with my dad. Uh, we had, also my mum died when I was quite young, so there's a lot of truth in, in the feeling of it, certainly not so much in the facts of everything. Although you clearly knew or watched with your father all the flora and the fauna on the bog, because the story is full of that in a beautiful way. And that part is fiction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Isn't it amazing that that's the bit that struck me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, my flora and fauna knowledge is not great, unfortunately. Well, you fooled me. <laughs> Congratulations. Katrina McArdle there with The Warbler. 
All right, we'll be back with more from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunera after this break. And welcome back to this arena special, announcing this year's winners of the RT Short Story Competition in honour of Francis McManus, live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera. Let's move straight away on to story number six in our Whistle Stop Tour, uh, Ferdia. This is Mr Who by John O'Donnell. Um, amazing set of relationships that are explored here. Maybe give us the essence of it, Ferdia, and what attracted you to well, it. Um, an, an irresistibly easily led young fella falls in love with an inanimate object, an owl in a glass case. And he and his friends go to the dark side, and it's a story about his redemption afterwards. It's written in the most fantastically direct, straight, moving language. And uh, it's a terrific creation. I just didn't want it to end. But it ended perfectly. That's the weirdest thing. Crammed so much into 2,000 words. Perfect arc about, young, about this young fellow. He's, he's unforgettable. He's gullible, but yet he is innocent. He's innocent and gullible, but yet he sort of knows what he's up mm. to as well. And he wants to be accepted by his friends, which is the, his downfall. But the, 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 it's, it's Mr. Who, it's Mr. Who, the Owl itself is an amazing creation as well, even yeah. though it doesn't say a word. It's just in a glass case. <laughs> and it's who, H-O-O, is how, it, is how it's spelled. H-O-O. Let's have Rory Nolan then to read a section from Mr Who by John O'Donnell. Yaz fiddled with the padlock, slid the door up and we stepped in. So much stuff. A pair of boxing gloves, a busted sofa, a crossbow, a brassy tuba, picture frames with no pictures in them. Who owns all this? asked Scar. Yaz answered, but we couldn't hear him properly. Mr. Who? said Scar. And that's when I saw him. He was perched on a high shelf, a tawny rage of feathers glaring down at us from inside his world of glass. The neat, tucked beak, ears like horns, his eyes blazing blood orange and the terrible curved talons that could pierce a rabbit's flesh, that could rip the heart out of a young lamb. Straight away, I knew that I would never see anything more beautiful or more deadly. I lifted him down carefully and brushed the dust off his glass dome. I'll look after you now, Mr Who, I said. I said it very quietly so that only he and I could hear. Hey, bored, said Yaz. I've got an idea. Scar shrugged. Oh, yeah? What? But Yaz wasn't looking at Scar. He was looking at me. His soft brown eyes and big toothy grin. I could feel his breath as he whispered in my ear. I looked at Mr. Who and then at Yaz. Okay, I said. Okay, yeah. Rory Nolan there reading from Mr Who by John O'Donnell and John coming up to the stage to speak to me about it there. I'm afraid now to ask about things that have a, 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 some sort of starting in real life because I'd probably guess the fictional bit as being the real bit. This did, <laughs> given Katrina, my experience with Katrina, this did start with a real life case. You're involved in the legal profession, yeah, John. Yeah, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, I was a law student and our, uh, our criminal law lecturer, Niall Osborough, told us about a case about two small boys or young boys in Wales on a bridge. And that's where it came from. 40 years later, it resurrected itself. And the voice of that young boy, there's huge empathy in it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I was also influenced, if you think there was a movie called Kes by Ken Loach, and it's a boy who falls in love with a hawk, and I was thinking of that, I was thinking of movies like Birdie. And then my son, one of my sons has a friend whose name, his nickname is Scar, even though his name is Oscar. That's what they call him, Scar, and he's got red hair, so I thought, well, he, he's going to be in the gang. And Yaz? Yaz is completely invented. Thought he would be. <laughs> okay. Thanks, John. Thanks, John O'Donnell and his story, Mr. Who. Um, and we'll move on to then our, our next story in, in our in our whistle stop tour. We're we're on Craigavon Bridge uh, for this one. Uh, no, sorry. Yes, we are on Craigavon Bridge for this one. Story number seven. Uh, Peter McCauley spoke to P Peter on Tuesday night's arena. Wonderful sense of place and a wonderful setting for this story, a father and son story, Kathleen. The atmosphere of a father and son looking for a lost uh, racing dog in the middle of the night on Craig Avon Bridge. And uh, Claire was a great champion of this story. And, you know, she, she said it reminded her of Beckett. It is that kind of just delicious, slightly strange acting out of this pitch-perfect dialogue between a father and a son, and the sense of hazard, as Claire said, that harm may come to these men in this place. And what I loved about this story, sometimes, don't ask me why I loved this, but the name of the dog is withheld until about halfway through the story. And when you hear the name of the dog, it's just perfect. Beautiful, beautiful. Oh, all right. Well, let us, uh, let us hear Rory Nolan reading a little bit of Craig Avonbridge then by Peter McCauley. We've gone and lost the dog. That's what we'll be telling her. We've gone and lost the dog. All you had to do is grab hold of it. Now it's gone. Her face will be a sight when we tell her that we've gone and lost the dog. It was nearly midnight, a Tuesday in April. We walked along foil road, fierce cold, biting wind coming off the foil, the dog's empty leash dangling at my side. You'd one job to do, one the dog track had closed hours ago. We'd lost again. It had been a bad run of losses. Last race of the evening, last race of the season, there was a hint of thunder in the air, but no actual thunder. You only had to grab hold of the thing. That's all you had to do. There was no holding her, I said. Something must have spooked her, I said. He wiped his forehead. His face was red. Spittle sparkled in the night air as he spoke. He wasn't used to walking. She bolted out through the gate like a bullet, I said. She'd have bolted nowhere if you'd have been holding on to her. You should have had her by the collar like I told you to. Here, up this way. Uh, on Craigavon Bridge there by Peter McCauley. Now we move on to story number eight, Tessa and Viviane by Judy Cruikshank. Um, it, Viviane is struggling, Kathleen, after the death of her mother here, but the way in which the, the mother is eccentric even after death and the way in which this story unfolds and how we learn about the mother is gorgeous. It is so cleverly constructed. This story is a novel in 2,000 words, and it's hard enough to write a novel in 100,000, but to write one in 2,000 is really impressive. Yeah, the, the mother comes back as a ghost, but in this perfectly constructed sequence of appearances that bring her back in time, each appearance she becomes younger and younger, and we start to understand why she is such a difficult presence in the daughter's life. 
moving to a really, really touching redemption at the end when mm. she sees her mother as a child and understands the trajectory of the life of yeah. this maddening, colourful, damaged woman who was her mother. It, yeah. it, it's a very good story. And it's lovely to get that sense of, yeah, your parents were children before they were your parents, obviously, before you ever knew them. Let's listen to a section of Tessa and Viviane by Julie Cruikshank, read for us by Katrina Niwarakul. I met the teacher for coffee. Lena positioned herself a few boots down, still attached to her morphine drip. She wore a turban hat and dark glasses. I worried about people tripping over tubes, but they seemed to dissolve on contact. Smile, she mouthed at me, a grimace of purple lipstick. Forget I'm here. She adjusted the roll of bloodied post-operative bandage that was slowly unwinding from her head. Later that week, I met him again and we sat in the window seat of the only decent restaurant in town. My mother passed by wearing a smock made from one of her old Wiccan tunics. She popped her head around the door. Your problem is that you're afraid to take a chance on anyone or anything. When I got home, Lena was in the hall. Used goods, she said was a phrase your grandmother was fond of. It was a different ball game back then. What now? I was tired, not in the mood for this uncharacteristic maternal fussing. I'm not judging you, she said. Just don't feel bad about yourself in the morning. <laughs> I won't. I'm not the one with the 80s Catholic guilt. Self-esteem, she said. That was the big thing in the 80s. Now I hear it's all about resilience. Oh, for crying out loud, it was just sex. Bad sex. It's a bit late for you to be worrying about my self-esteem. I closed the bathroom door in her face. Five minutes later. What's wrong with you that you have no self-esteem? <laughs> mm. Katrina Niwaraku reading from Tessa and Viviane by Judy Cruikshank and Judy coming up to the stage to me now. Two things, Judy, I wondered about this. Did you know it was a ghost story from the outset and did you know that that ghost was going to travel backwards to be, be, become a little girl? I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's true. I did. Uh, I, I do like ghost stories and I was interested in, I suppose, the idea of haunting after, you know, someone dies, how they they haunt you and by, by trying to, almost trying to see how the mother would try and explain herself maybe in some way to the daughter through those kind of ghostly apparitions or whether it's in the daughter's head or not, but that was the idea. And indeed, this is your third time to be shortlisted for this competition. You were here last year for the coast of Africa. You were finalist then three years ago. One other of your stories made, made the final. Obviously, it's a competition that you like being part of. Obviously. <laughs> well, the best of luck with, uh, with this shortlisting tonight. Congratulations on the story. All right, we are on to the penultimate story, and the penultimate story that we're going to talk about is the Turkish rug by Natalie Ryan. Natalie was in, on the show with me last, last week. Um, wonderful story, this, about a relationship that really is fading, and yet there's something still between this married couple 
And God bless him, he goes and gets the Turkish rug, the husband. He goes and he bu- comes home with a Turkish rug and he puts it in the bedroom on his side of the room. Um, it's the only story I've ever read that has a Turkish rug as an unofficial marriage counsellor to a jaded couple. And it's beautifully realised. It's odd, it's quirky, you don't know where it's going to go. Uh, it's, it's beautifully maintained, the tension of it is maintained. It's funny. Uh, and the, resum- the, the, the redemption at the end is just lovely. It's a quirky, lively, original story. And the Turkish rug is an absolute star. <laughs> well, let us listen to a, a little section of the story read for us once again. Katrina Niwaraku. That week, Samuel had a dream. Not dissimilar to a recurring dream he'd had as a child when his favourite book was 1001 Arabian Nights. In the dream, he flew on a magic carpet up, up into the starry night sky and its oblivion, both exhilarated and terrified of falling. Then Helen beside him, holding him close, their legs hanging over the edge, like Ivan and Vasilisa in the Vasnetsov painting. A young Hel in her wedding dress, a young Sam in his navy wool suit, their lives stretched out ahead of them, the magic ride only beginning. He awoke with a shudder and turned towards Helen. She lay very still, the white bedsheet pulled up to her neck, and Samuel was filled with a great love and a great sadness, both. He sat up in bed and half asleep landed one bare foot, then the other, onto the rug. He paused, scrunching the balls of his feet, luxuriating in the comfort of wool and silk, tracing his toe along one of the green frond patterns. He recalled Sadiq kissing him on both cheeks on the footpath outside his hotel in Istanbul. He wasn't naive. He knew it was a transaction of sorts. But that night, when Sadiq had whispered, You are a good man, Samuel. The sweet smell of shisha on his breath. Samuel had been able to believe him. Katrina Niwaraku reading from the Turkish rug there by Natalie Ryan. And so our final story off-season by Jamie Sampson. Jamie was on with us on the programme as well uh, last week. Uh, and I just love the we're in off-season. Great place to set a story, a holiday resort, when there's nobody there. Uh, we're in Tarnamalinas, and it's a couple who were a big item in the past, Kathleen. And for reasons... Best known to themselves, they've agreed to meet in Tormelinos in March and see if they can rekindle this big love affair. And it's excruciating. Um, Rekindling is the perfect word. You know when you're trying to light a fire with damp wood? I mean, it is just the setting of the story is perfectly in tune with this gruesome weekend. The dialogue is just so full of antipathy. She sees an old man with a metal detector on the beach and she says, that'll be you. Um, I mean, it is just brilliant. Okay, yeah, Tara Molinas in March. Not really the best place to invite somebody. Let's have Rory Nolan to read a little section from Jamie Sampson's story. The double bed was smaller than it had appeared in the photos. It just sat there, bluntly awaiting use, 
like a toilet <laughs> or a tombstone. Coldly, Chloe regarded its petal-strewn folds and something in me sank. Her unwillingness to even consider intimacy was confirmed later on at dinner when her foot rubbed briefly against mine under the table. She instantly sat up straight and broadened her shoulders and apologised in a brisk, stately tone that made it very clear indeed that our skin would touch this weekend only by means of an accident. We lay down side by side that night for the first time in six years. As I slept, my arm, yielding to some unconscious craving for the old familiar warmth, came softly over her body. Don't do that, her dark form commanded. Sorry, I didn't. It's fine. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Just don't do that. I obeyed by rolling so far onto my side of the bed that half my body dangled over the edge, a position in which I remained like a chastened sloth until the following morning. There we have it. That is uh, Off Season by Jamie Sampson, read for us by Rory Nolan. Back with the third place, second place and first place after this break. And welcome back to the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleer and my heart won't stop beating fast. Let us, without further ado, start in reverse order. Ferdia, you're going to read some of Claire Kilroy's um, uh, citation around the third placed uh, story. This is what Claire had to say. This writer had an uncanny ability to uh, alight on details that are so authentic as to put the reader there. He has managed himself, he managed to put himself fully into the young protagonist's shoes, or rather his red Doc Martens. I have great pleasure in awarding third prize in the Francis McManus Awards to Breathe by Robin Livingston. Congratulations. And congratulations to Robin Livingstone. Third place in this year's competition for his story, Breathe. Let us move on now to the second placed story. Kathleen? Our choice of story for the second prize was a triumph of character. The writer managed to fashion a fictional person who stormed off the page in full colour. A bohemian mother who comes back from the dead as an annoying ghost is the star of this glorious story. The second prize in this year's RTE short story competition is... Julie Cruikshank for Tessa and Viviane. And congratulations to Julie Cruikshank, uh, Tessa and Viviane, the title of the second place story. And finally then, Oscars like, we're going to have both judges announce the winning story this evening. On this, our decision was unanimous. We all three agreed that this story has it all. A perfectly contained, delicate piece of writing that progresses from sweetness and comedy to jeopardy and ultimately beauty. Gives us enormous pleasure to award the first prize in the Francis McManus Awards to Mr. Who by John O'Donnell. John O'Donnell for his story, Mr. Who, is the winner of this year's RTE short story competition. Congratulations to John and indeed congratulations to all 10 shortlisted writers this evening. Thanks to our judges, Claire Kilroy, Ferdia McKenna and Kathy McMahon.
to our actors, Rory Nolan, Katrina Niwaraku, and to all of our shortlisted authors. On sound tonight were Damien Chanel, and Mark Dwyer and Liam Mullins in studio in RTE. The broadcast coordinator was Elaine Conlon, the researcher was Paula Shields, and the show was produced by Sarah Binchy and Kay Sheehy.